just want to take, uh, take a moment and um, introduce myself. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Don Miller. I'm one of the elders here at Harvest Decatur. And uh, as Paul had mentioned earlier, I'll be bringing the message this morning. You know, we're going to look at the, the book of Numbers. Uh, specifically, we're going to continue, um, continue on a study in the Old Testament where, an elder, where it's an elder-led sermon series where we're looking at a new look at the Old Testament. You know, it's been an interesting couple of weeks for me in preparing uh, for this message. I, I was well on my way to having this, this message prepared and wrapped up uh, last Saturday, a week ago yesterday. Um, and suddenly at 3.28 p.m., the hard drive that I was backing everything up to uh, went bad, and I lost all of my sermon notes at, at that point in time. You know, it's... oh. You know, it's, it's interesting, though, um, how God can suddenly say, Don, I need you to go a different direction. And I tried to recover it, and I tried to recover it, and I got everything back off of that hard drive except that directory that had that file in it. Um, and so, you know, it's, you know, God can move us in the direction that he wants us to go like that. And uh, despite where we're heading, despite what we're doing, despite what our plans are, there are times where he just needs to hem us in and say, this is what I need from you. And, um, you know, I don't know why God chose to, to change my direction um, this last week, but I know that he did. And I just pray that I'm faithful uh, to his leading and that his message uh, this morning would be um, edifying to us as a church body. Um, you know, we're going to look at the oracles of Balaam today in the book of Numbers. You know, there are chapters 23 and 24 in your Bibles. But, you know, in order for us to get the full context of them, you know, we're going to need a little bit of background. So we'll, we'll do that. But before we do that, let's take a moment and pray and set our hearts squarely before the throne of God and ask him to unfold his scriptures for us this morning. So pray with me if you would. Father, as we enter into this time, we need you to provide us with eyes that see and ears that hear your word. May your spirit, Lord, guide our thinking um, even now. And may the things that would distract us this morning, Lord, we ask that you'd help us just to put them aside that we can focus on you and the words that you have for us this morning. We pray, Lord, that your unrelenting desire that we grow closer to you would be done today that your word would pierce our hearts and cause each of us to bring better glory and honor to you. And as I speak this morning, Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Okay, well, if you would uh, turn with me to Numbers in your Bibles. Um, you know, the basis for the title of Numbers, it's the fourth book in the Bible, is attributed to the census list um, that are found in chapters 1 through 4, and there's some more census activity in uh, chapter 26 of the, of the book. But, you know, we get a better understanding of the context for, for what we're studying today if we just look at the first chapter, the first verse, where it begins with a phrase, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. You know, the phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses and the, the word wilderness kind of set the stage for what's happening. The Israelites are in the midst of the exodus from Egypt. You know, last week, Pastor Tony talked to us, preached uh, about the um, Israelites um, and the exodus as they initially left Egypt and the salvation of his people uh, as they departed parted from Egypt and we know from other scripture that there's an ongoing pattern um, throughout the wilderness that the Israelite nation has this this waning faith with kind of an ongoing uh, complaint and God takes care of them and more complaints and God takes care of them pattern um, and yet still God provided for and sustained them throughout uh, throughout uh, their time in the wilderness you know we know this part of Israel's history as the 40 years in the wilderness or 40 years in the desert. Um, well, we'll see in Numbers that God also promised Israel a series of military victories. Um, you know, and as long as Israel followed him, God provided those victories. And it was victory after victory after victory. 
And uh, now the Israelites find themselves in the plains of Moab, and they're camped along the Jordan River, uh, just across from Jericho at the Jericho at the entrance of the Promised Land. So you know Moses was there. They're likely we're 40 years in, so they're likely going to have uh, some people that left. Israel at the time um, still there, but there's a whole new generation of people who've been born uh, in, during this 40-year um, time frame. So the Expositor's Bible Commentary, Longman and, in, in that, Longman and Garland note that while Numbers describes the affairs of the Israelites of the first generation of people that left Egypt, its teachings were for their sons and daughters who were now mature and were about to enter Canaan, the Promised Land. So that kind of gives us the the location that, that we're dealing with here. Now let's take a look at the persons that are in the text. We've really got, uh, we've got the king of Moab, his name is Balaam, or, ba- or Balak. We have Balaam, who is a sorcerer. Uh, we have Israel, and then we have, of course, God Almighty, the king of the universe, uh, creator of all things. You know, you know, Balak was the king of Moab. Israel was camped in, their, in the plains of Moab, so right away you get this sense that there's going to be conflict. Well, Balak had heard of this Israelite nation. I mean, after all, their armies had, had recently defeated Amalek, the king of Ered, defeated the Amorites, and they defeated the forces of Og and the king of Bashan. Nation after nation had been wiped out by, by this uh, Israelite nation. You know, mass migration was occurring, and now they're encamped in the plain regions. Now, if you're Balak, what do you do? You know, you've got, your land is completely, completely invaded. Well, Balak was scared and fearful that something was going to happen to his kingdom and needed to do something to protect it. Well, in response to his fear, what we find is that he did what many other rulers did at that time, and frankly, they still do it today. You know, he sought to develop alliances with others. In this case, he aligned himself with Midian. Um, you know, and together with uh, the Moabite elders and the Midian elders, you know, they acknowledged that there was really no way for them to fight this nation of Israel militarily. There was just too many of them. It was too great and too powerful. So they agreed to seek out someone to put a curse on Israel um, and try to weaken Israel in the spiritual realm rather than fight them militarily. You know, now we asked the question, that person was Balaam. So we we would ask the question, how would Balak have made that decision? Uh, what does the scripture tell us uh, to go to Balaam and know that he's the right person to put the curse on Israel? Well, scripture doesn't specifically say, but also in the commentary, um, it, it, talks about, it talked about some prophetic texts of Balaam's that were discovered about 600, uh, the 6th century. And... Um, it says that the texts that were discovered demonstrate how famous this man was in the ancient Near East, even centuries after his death. Now, centuries is a long time to, to have your memory passed down. So, um, you know, regardless of how Balak found Balaam to do this particular work, Balaam had that reputation that was clearly aligned with divination for hire. So Balak sought out, the, he had sought out the best of the best, the sage of all divination sages, if you will. You know, he's looking for the one person up for the task of calling down the curse on the nation of Israel. And if you think, if you think that I'm, don't take my word for it, look at what the, the Bible says. Balak says in Numbers 22, and this is in the message that he sends to Balaam as he tries to hire him. He says, come now, Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balak is convinced that he had the right man for the job. Balaam had all the credentials. He had a history of successful manipulation of the gods. That's what he did. You know, he had a powerful reputation, and Frankly, he was available for hire. That's right, you pay him enough, and he would be more than willing to practice divination on your behalf. So Balak reached out, and he he failed on that first attempt to get Balaam to come. 
And during that attempt, God had made it clear to Balaam that he was not to go with the people that uh, had been sent and that he was specifically not to put a curse on Israel. So, and then there was the second attempt. You know, Balaam was a diviner for hire, you know, and Balak was a, a willing customer and a king who didn't want to take no for an answer. So what the king do? He sent more noble characters uh, more distinguished representatives with bigger and better gifts as a way of enticing Balaam, playing to his weakness. Um, and Balaam, respond, Balaam responded by saying, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not be, go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do more or do less. Now, what's interesting is you look at that verse, and it looks like Balaam's response in here is almost like he's a believer in Yahweh, right? You know, the phrase, Lord my God, sounds like a follower of Yahweh, but it's obvious that Balaam has lived a life, and that's the, the realm that he deals in is in spiritual things. But this man says one thing with his, his words, and he does another thing with his actions. You know, in Revelations 2.14, God has plenty to say about Balaam. When he's speaking, God is speaking to the church at Pergamum. Uh, Revelations 2.14 says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. You see, in the end... Balaam ultimately is held to account for a life that led people away from God. You know, his ability to read omens from the entrails of animals as a diviner, uh, observe natural phenomenon and determine the will of gods, that's little g gods, um, had led him into a prophetic spiritual life, but yet it was a life that was still full of depravity and self-seeking, self-gratification. You know, in the book, Upon the Character of Balaam, it was written... Uh, written by uh, Bishop Joseph Butler and published by Oxford Press, the bishop concluded when speaking of Balaam, so the object that we have before us is the most astonishing in the world, a very wicked man under a deep sense of God and religion, persisting still in his wickedness and preferring the wages of unrighteousness even when he had before him a lively view of death. Good God, what inconsistency and what perplexity is here. You know, so it wasn't that Balaam was a believer and struggled with greed or struggled with anything in particular. You know, it was that Balaam was a sorcerer, uh, a baru, if you will, um, which means diviner, uh, and to which, to him, the God of Israel was just another God for him to manipulate. You know, we saw in that first exchange where Balaam was told not to go with the men, uh, but we have prestigious emissaries now standing in front of him with the, these precious gifts and payments for div the divination services. And instead of standing, standing firmly against them, he says, before you leave, let me open that door one more time. Maybe God will change his mind. You know, I can just see Balaam standing there saying, you know, if I just ask Yahweh again, maybe I'll get my way. Maybe I'll get my, div my divination payday along with it. You know, here's what Numbers 22 says about that exchange. He tells the men, please stay here tonight that I may know more what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and he said, if these men have come to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princess of Moab. You know, at first God says, don't go, and then says, Go ahead and go to Moab. You know, but I want to tell you what to do when you're in transit and what you do when you get there. You know, God's not a God to be manipulated. And God knows what Balaam's intention is. You know, he wants to make money from the king and he wants to do that by issuing a curse on Israel. But you see what's happening here. God is hemming him in. He says, first you can go, now there's conditions, or you can't go. Now if I let you go, there's conditions on what I'm going to allow you to do. You're only going to do what I tell you you can do. So God was hemming him in. The donkey that we see here in verse 21 uh, is the, the donkey that we remember from our Bible stories as kids. That's, this is the 
talking donkey, right? Um, so without delving into the story too much, because um, we're still dealing with background here, um, Balaam is on the road, and the angel of the Lord, and he's on his donkey, and the angel of the Lord appears to the donkey three different times. You know, first time he's on the road, the donkey veers off, he beats it to get back on the path. The second time, the road's a little bit narrower, the donkey veers off. When it sees the angel of the Lord, he beats it to get it back on the right path. The third time, the road is so narrow that there's no place for the donkey to turn left or right, and the donkey drops in front of the angel of the Lord. So, you know, you've got, what you've got is a narrowing path uh, along the way. But so then there's the exchange with the donkey between Balaam or um, the, the donkey and Balaam. And then there's a further exchange with Balaam and the angel of the Lord. Now, that entire s- section of scripture, I mean, there's, it's, it's a study in and of itself but the entire exchange is leading up to uh, the conversation that Balaam and the angel of the Lord um, had to say. And here's what, in, in Numbers 22, verse 35, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, and that's what this is leading up to. He reiterates, go with the men, but speak now only the words that I tell you. So Balaam went with the princess to Balak. So he starts with, don't go then it's okay to go do what I do. Now I'm telling you, you can go, but only say what I'm going to say. So he's narrowing the conditions with which Balaam is going to be able to operate whenever he gets there. You know, in verse 20, God tells him to do only what, only what God tells him to do. You know, in verse 35 here, God tells him only to speak what I tell you. You know, we see a direct command here from God. And it's a warning to the diviner, diviner to avoid such disobedience. You know, all of us have tried that at some point in time. We've all tried to go our own way and do our own thing. And the Lord begins to hem us in. You know, we've all been there. We've all done that. You know, can you name a few of them in your life? You know, it might be a career path that you started down only to realize that it was the wrong path for you. Uh, it might be a family decision that wasn't the right decision. You know, but all the while, the Lord is narrowing the path to bring you to a place of decision and bring me to a place of decision. Do I heed the word of the Lord or do I walk away like Balaam did? Seeking to do my own, my own thing, do what seems wise in my own sight, and I just pray that God protects us from that ignorance and that arrogance. So uh, with that, let's get into the oracles. There were four oracles, um, and we're going to step through them one at a time. Uh, The first oracle, and this is the first point in your sermon notes, it portrays Israel as God's chosen people. You know, the oracles are each structured with an introduction, and then you have an oracle, and then you have what I would call the aftermath of, of the exchange. So... You have the oracle, and they're, they're generally fairly short, but they're sandwiched in between. These are sandwiched in between exchanges between Balak and Balaam and what gets, um, you know, what's happening between those two. So there's this, uh, there's this personality conflict, if you will, happening between these two, these two men. Um, so the introduction to Balaam, 23 uh, verses 1 through 6, Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam, and Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. You know, here in verses 1 through 3, Balak Balak has been given the instructions, build seven altars, prepare seven bulls, seven rams, and after you do that, stay put. Don't do a thing. I'm going to go do my thing, and maybe God will do his. You know, a couple of interesting things about, 
about this. You know, the number seven, it was highly regarded in the Semitic, by the Semitic people in general, the number seven. Well, it was also highly regarded among the Eastern religions uh, that Balak would have been involved with. So um, while the number seven sounds spiritual, you know, the sacrifices that are described here, they don't line up with any of the sacrifices that God laid out in the Old Testament text. You know, so this is really Balaam doing his own thing, laying it out, not following what God had instructed him to do. Um, and so the interesting about that is, though they weren't like the sacrifices that we know sacrifices to be, seven rams and seven bulls would have provided an awful lot of livers and kidneys and organs for a divination expert to read and look for omens in. And so, um, you know, that whole, that whole exchange is kind of set up for Balaam to do what Balaam needs to do, wants to do. Okay, so the, the first oracle itself uh, in verses 7 through 12, And Balaam took up his discourse and said, from Aram, from Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come curse Jacob for me, and come denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. You know, it seems, uh, it seems clear that Balak was beginning to understand who was in charge. You know, I'm not, I can't do what God doesn't allow me to do. And he's beginning to, to say that and see that. You know, but at the end of verse 10, he says, let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. You know, it's interesting that he's concluding his first oracle with, with something that sounds like, I wish I could be as blessed as Israel is at the end of my days. Um, I love what Warren Wearsby says about this. He said, that's all fine and good, but you don't die the death of the righteous unless you live the life of the righteous. And that was something Balaam wasn't prepared to do. His love of money controlled his life so that he would do anything to get wealth. So, um, you know, it's, perhaps Balaam, it's a pipe dream. It's not going to happen, you know, but, uh, you know, in spite of that unrighteousness that, uh, that we see in Balaam's life, he's learned a very important lesson through his interactions with Yahweh and the donkey and the angel of the Lord. Uh, he's learned that Yahweh's in charge and there's no changing God's mind regarding the covenant promise that he made, he's made with Israel. Remember the covenant promise that God made with uh, Abram? It says, go for, and this is in Genesis chapter 12, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Which brings me to point 1A in your notes. You know, even what we know about God's character or Balaam's character and his ungodliness, God still chose to meet with him. And so God decides who he's going to use to accomplish his purposes. You know, it's a wonder that God would use Balaam to tell us the basic truths that we see in this oracle. You know, basic truth number one, God has blessed the nation of Israel and they can't be cursed. And that's a pretty basic truth, right? But you look back on it, and God has judged every ruler throughout history that's caused his people to suffer. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, even Nazi Germany. You know, we shouldn't forget, though, the part of the covenant that Abram was, Abram was the blessed the entire world through this nation of, of Israel. And you and I receive that blessing through our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, you know, and the second basic truth is being chosen by God. Israel is set apart from other nations because of that chosen status. You know, Leviticus 20 verse 26 says, 
you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. And I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. You know, 1 Kings 8.53 reinforces that. It says, For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses. Why did he do this? It's because he loved them. You know, and he still loves them. You know, Deuteronomy 4.37 says, Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. You know, all too often we'll, we'll look at the, you know, we'll, we'll take a look and we'll say, you know, hey, this person, this person's got it all together. God's going to use this person. Um, I'm not sure you can say that about Balaam. If you'd looked at this person, he probably wouldn't have been that. Um, and other times, you know, and I can speak from my own experience, you know, I've seen examples of meek, small, frail people, uh, both men and women alike. You would, you would look at them and say, you know what, they're probably their most productive days are behind them. But when I sit down with them and talk with them and learn from them, I realize the love and knowledge and wisdom that flows through them is an unparalleled knowledge that, that comes forward out. I have, you know, we all have parents and grandparents and in some cases great-grandparents where, you know, they just drive you bonkers. I'm not one of those grandparents, by the way. Um, but I tell you, you know, they'll say, you know how we say, tend to say something over and over again? We have that, that one story. Well, you know, and, you know, they say the same thing. They'll tell us the same story over and over again. And all the while, you're sitting there nodding your head. Yes, Mom, I know. And uh, the entire time, yes, Dad, I know. And the entire time you're thinking, boy, I wish they'd get another story. Well, I had a dear friend um, who passed away earlier this year. She was a godly lady, a longtime follower of Jesus Christ. Um, and, you know, I remember her telling me, and I was with her son at the time, I remember her telling me that when she had little ones at home, you know, they didn't have the big fancy homes and the $50,000 cars that, uh, that we have nowadays. You know, she said, you know, the rooms in our house were small and they were shared by everyone, so you just had to make do. You know, and when it was time to pray, she said, I would take my apron and flip it up over my head and as I sat in my rocking chair, I prayed. Everyone in the house knew that it was time to prayer. It was prayer time, and Mama was not to be interrupted. You know, and I remember her son just kind of laughed, and he said, yeah, Mama, I know. Um, and I love that story. You know, I just, uh, I, they heard that story from her again and again and again. Uh, but you know what? Sometimes we need to hear stories like that again and again and again. I mean, think about the message that that, that story taught. Prayer was, is, and always should be a priority no matter what the circumstances are. And we need to be reminded of that. And, you know, and I've seen other times, um, aside from that, where young people have showed me you know, how to pray about things. I've seen you know, asking about how do I deal with this? You know, how, you know, they're looking for how do I deal with this cancel culture and trying to share my faith in school? How do I deal with the LBTQ? whatever initials uh, community that we have to deal with in my school. You know, how, how do we do with that? You know, I'm telling you, they have, you know, young people have, they have challenges, but they have a lot to share about their faith, about how to live out a Christian life in, in those circumstances. Um, you know, and what this scripture is telling us is that, you know, God is the one who's in charge, and he's going to use whomever he pleases to deal whatever the circumstances are that, that uh, we deal with. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. He's going to accomplish his purpose. Age and ethnicity doesn't matter. Financial status doesn't matter. You know, how much you've messed up your life doesn't matter. In fact, how broken you are doesn't matter. What matters is that God has a plan, and he knows what he's doing, and he can use you and I to accomplish that plan with all of our flaws, with all of our physical shortcomings, our flawed speech, our illnesses, our checkered past, the sovereign God of the universe, the Yahweh who led his flawed people out of Egypt has a plan, and he'll accomplish that plan however he chooses. 
So this, the second point in your notes and the focus of the second oracle is that Israel is God's conquering people. You know, we saw at the end of the first oracle that Balak didn't get the curse that he was looking for uh, from Balaam. In fact, the, the preface to the second oracle begins with Balak telling Balaam, hey, let's go to a different location. I didn't get what I wanted the last time. Let's go to a different location and perhaps you can curse them from there. Um, and so they go to this different location um, and they performed the same seven altars, seven bulls, seven ram ritual, after which it, Balaam again left the king and went off on his own. And this time the Lord told Balaam what to say, and we read it in verses um, 18 through 24, it's the second oracle. He says, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should not lie, or that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He is blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and a shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt, and is for them like the horns of a wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, what God has wrought, what has God wrought? Behold, it's a people. As a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. You know, here Balak and Balaam are reminded that they're dealing with a deity that's unlike any of the false gods that, that Balaam has dealt with in the past. You know, God is not a God that can be manipulated. He's not a God who changes his mind. You know, one of the basic tenets in Hebrew thought was that, that God and humankind are not the same and they should never be confused with one another. You know, God did the creating and we are the created. You know, it's, it's easy for us to change our minds. Happens every day, happens all the time. But verse 20 makes it clear that God will do as he wishes despite the number of pleas from Balak or Balaam to the, to the contrary. You know, so the takeaway uh, from this is, and this is point 2A in your notes, is that in his sovereignty, God does as he pleases. You know, the first oracle portrayed Israel as a chosen people. This oracle portrays Israel as a conquering people. And that conquering is because of God's power and faithfulness. You know, we don't need to look any further than verse 22 to see God's power at work in this oracle. The, God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. You know, that phrase, that phrase horns, of, horns of the wild ox, is used as an illustration of God's power. And, you know, Pastor Tony sh shared with us uh, the Exodus last week and how God brought the people out of Israel, or out of uh, Egypt, rather. And then he picks a fight with his enemies. You remember him saying that? Picks a fight with his enemies. Well, there's no Ill better illustration of God's power for us than seeing Exodus, the Exodus of the Israelites as they initially left Egypt. You know, we kn but we know that Israel was not perfect. Uh, we've seen that. And yet God looks upon them as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We read that in Exodus 19.6. You know, despite having to correct them from time to time, he is faithful to his covenant with Abraham. With Abram. Why does he do that? Because he's the unwavering God of the universe and he said he would. Because he loved them and he loves us. You know, Ephesians 1.4 tells that, that once we are in Christ, we are a chosen people clothed in his righteousness. You know, and because we are in Christ, we, we are considered his own. You know, we're a direct parallel to the Israelite nation. You know, we are God's to correct, we're the Holy Spirit's to guide, and we are his to use as he sees fit. You know, it might be that he wants to use you today to reach out to your neighbor and tell them about the great good news of Jesus Christ. You know, it might be that God is wanting you to reach out to a hurting friend got some real family or relationship issues that you're aware of. You know, it might be that he wants to send you to the ends of the earth, teaching them to obey all that's written in his word. 
Or it may simply be that he wants you to change your sermon because he's got a better message than what you had in mind. You know, I don't know, but one thing's for certain. God has a plan and you and I are a part of it. You know, the the aftermath of this uh, second oracle deals with uh, Balak's dissatisfaction with Balaam's refusal to curse Israel yet again. You know, he says, and Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all. Do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? So Balak's pretty dissatisfied, or yeah, Balak's pretty dissatisfied at this point in time. He said, I'd rather you say nothing than to bless them, basically is what he's saying here. So there's an ongoing and growing dissatisfaction between these two. Um, I think it's a disconnect. It looks like a disconnect between their understanding of what their roles are. Balak thinks he's the employer who's paid for a service, and Balaam is beginning to understand that he's a mouthpiece of Yahweh and concluding that Yahweh is not going to change his mind. So the third oracle points towards the idea that God's promised land provides contentment in Israel. You know, there's a, a shift in this oracle from the, the previous two, the past, past and present tense of the, the tenor of the first two, uh, shifts to more of a future tense that's reflective of Israel in their own land and beyond their own land. You know, before this third oracle, uh, Balak takes Balaam to yet a third location, and this is on the top of, of Peor, overlooking the desert. Now, this is interesting because Peor was the Moabite center for Baal worship, so it's almost as though um, Balak is, is in his own wisdom and his own thinking saying, if I bring him to this, this center of Baal worship, perhaps I can put some other external pressure, spiritual pressure on this guy to curse the nation of Israel. Well, you know, this time, this time is different. There's still the same seven ritual, the same ritual of seven rams, seven bulls, seven altars. That was the same. But Balaam doesn't leave as he did the previous time. So let's pick it up in uh, verse, uh, chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. This is the introduction. When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as other times to look for omens. But he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And he took up his discourse and he said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. You know, here we don't see Balaam practicing divination as a normal Beiru would. Instead, this time he turned westward, looked up into the sky, and a vision of the future came, up, came upon him. You know, you know, the Spirit of God came upon him. You know, this is, this is an amazing moment when, when this happens. You know, Balaam, a man whose eyes is open, a man who hears the Word of God, sees a vision of the Almighty, and significantly he falls down with his eyes uncovered. You know, it's ironic here that Balaam, who beat his donkey for laying down before the angel of the Lord, now finds himself falling down with his eyes uncovered before the Lord. You know, it gives us the, excuse me, it gives us the impression that something extraordinary is occurring here. Which brings me to point 3A in your notes, and that is God reveals himself to whom he pleases. You know, think about it. We've seen this, we've seen this elsewhere. You know, Saul was on the road to Damascus on his way to attack the church. Those who followed the way he was going after him, and out of nowhere, bam, Suddenly, a light from heaven shone around Saul, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. Yeah, the parallel here is, is astounding. Balaam dropped, his eyes were open. Saul dropped, his eyes were opened. The question is, what did each do with their opened eyes? Both men had dramatic encounters. Both men were attempting to harm God's people. Both men unknowingly were hemmed in by the God of the universe. You know, we ought to be asking, 
why would God be, why would God be revealing himself to these two bad actors? Well, it's because he's God and he has a plan and he can do as he wishes and he can reveal himself to whoever he pleases. You know, but both of these men had to make a choice. You know, what do I do with this new information that is before me? Do I submit my life to God or do I carry on in my old way? You know, Paul submitted. Balaam stayed stuck in his love of money. You, know, you would have thought Balaam's experience would have brought him to the point of submission and faith, but it didn't. You know, it shows us how true the words of Matthew 7, 21 through 23 are, where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Okay, so it's application time. You know, where has or where is God revealing himself in your life? Do you sense God hemming you in in any way right now? You know, we've been talking about Balaam and his uh, greed and his addiction to money. What about gambling? Anger? uncontrolled, unwarranted abuse on those around you, complacency, are you responding when the Holy Spirit is prompting you or just hoping that it passes? What about gossip, unfettered and loose speech? Maybe you are right now dealing with pornography or sexual sin. Maybe you're at the crossroads that Saul and Balaam came to and just needing to decide, do I turn from my sin and leave my checkered past behind and accept that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life and no one gets to the Father except through Jesus Christ, his Son. If that's you, don't let today pass without acting on that. You know, seek out an elder Seek out a pastor, seek out a trusted Christian confidant friend, and just simply ask them, what must I do to be saved? Uh, I would just say, be like Saul and accept Jesus. Don't stay stuck in the past like Balaam did. So the third oracle um, is frankly written beautifully. I just love this. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seeds shall be many. His waters be, many, be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness, who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. You know, verse seven here points us to his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. Now, the commentaries will tell you it's difficult to identify who the king is here. Um, many of them will say this is a dual prophecy. One represents, it represents King David and his military might. Um, you know, Warren Wearsby says this about it. He says the king may be David as an earthly king, but it certainly points to Jesus Christ who is higher than the kings of the earth. Uh, you know, I I think there's validity to both of those after studying this. Um, I just want to do a quick comparison to you, uh, for you, um, between the verse in the second oracle and the third oracle. You know, in the second oracle, uh, the pronoun them is, is the pronoun them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them 
like the horns of the wild ox. And in the third oracle, that pronoun shifts to him. God brings him out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. You know, it's, it's interesting that that happens because I, I personally I believe that this him is Jesus Christ. Um, you remember Mary and Joseph fleeing Bethlehem in Matthew 2.13? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I think this oracle is a prophecy of that future event. You know, the Messiah is coming out of Egypt with all the power and will take on all nations, all adversaries, and nothing will be able to overcome him. The aftermath um, in this oracle, we haven't spent really much time talking about uh, the aftermath and how Balak and Balaam's employer-employee relationship is going. So I want to do that here just for, just for a moment. Numbers 24, verses 10 through 14. You know, this is the aftermath of this third oracle. at this third. Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them three times. Now, therefore, flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, I told you so. I mean, that's essentially what he's, say, what he's saying here. I told you so. If this were an episode of The Apprentice, we would hear Balak looking at Balaam and say, you're fired. You know, the tensions have gotten so high between these, uh, between these two characters that it becomes unbearable, and Balak says, go home. I'm, I'm done with you. But Balak says, I told you so. He agrees to depart, but not before delivering his final oracle. And, you know, the intro to this, uh, this, this um, oracle is the same as the intro to the third. Um, but, and the oracle itself is very short and very messianic. So Numbers 24, 14 through 15 is the fourth oracle. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. You know, the language that God gives Balaam here, um, and frankly, in all four of these oracles, is so clear and so vivid, it's hard to understand why God would use such an evil prophet to speak some of the clearest and most powerful prophecies of the Messiah in the Bible. But he does. But point four in your notes should be this. God's plan has not changed. You know, the star reference here is directly connected to the end of Revelations in Revelations 22:16, where Jesus says, I have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. And I am the root, I am the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. You know, the scepter here goes all the way back to Genesis which reads, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So the beginning of the Bible and the end of the Bible. God gives Balaam the words that Jacob used in Genesis as a blessing for his children, and that Jesus uses at the end of Revelations. The wonder of it all. You know, the references couldn't be clear that there is a Savior who was prophesied about in the beginning, a Messiah who has come once and was brought out of Egypt, and a Messiah who will come again and reign through the nations. And that Messiah will destroy the enemies of his people. The last verse tells us that Balaam rose and went back to his place, and Balak went his way. So you may recall the definition of an Easter egg. Uh, George uh, 
Bennett introduced that a couple, a couple of weeks ago. An Easter egg is that secret image or message that's embedded in a, a movie or video game or some other electronic application. Well, I want to step back and address the embedded message here that we don't want to miss in, in uh, these oracles. And that is that you know, we have seen a Moabite king and the diviner, diviner Balaam devising, conniving, and trying to work a sinister plan to place a curse on Israel. You know, a curse is a spiritual battle. It's a battle that's unseen to human eyes. It's spiritual warfare. The Israelites were doing life in the plains of Moab, waiting for God to provide direction on their next move. They were unaware that this spiritual battle was even underway. But God saw it unfolding and was devising a counterattack. It was a different spiritual plan. And God sent angels to work his plan. He engaged donkeys to work his plan. You know, he spent, sent the Holy Spirit upon Balaam to further his plan. You know, and God even used that same evil man to reveal his past, present, and future plan. You know, God was protecting the covenant that he had made with, with Abram and is protecting his people. And we have to ask, why would he do that? He loved the Israelites he loves his people, and love always protects. You know, we, we find that love always protects written in 1 Corinthians 13, 7. It's, it's in the New Testament. We find it demonstrated here in the Old Testament. But I want to remind us of a new and better demonstration of love always protects. And that is, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did that so you and I can have protection from hell. And he did that before we ever knew him. And he did that so we might spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the message this morning. We thank you for... um, uncovering our eyes Uh, many of us years ago some of us not so long ago and father if there's anyone in the room today that you've uncovered their eyes lord pray that you give them strength to step out and deal with that issue now pray father that uh, you give them the courage to seek out the the help seek out the direction just to ask What must I do to be saved? Lord, we love you. We thank you so much. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.